0: Let me pray for us, lead us in prayer before we open God's word and hear it read and preached this evening. Father, we do pray this evening that you would speak from the heavens, that you would thunder here on earth in this room. In our minds, in our hearts, in the very recesses of our souls, that we would hear wisdom from above, that as your word goes out, that it would not return void, that it would accomplish its purposes, your purposes, in our lives and in our persons, in our faith together, as we seek to live for Your glory and Your praise. It's in Christ the living Word's name we pray. Amen. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This is the holy inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I think I've asked through the centuries, maybe at least since the early 17th century, late 17th century, if you had asked, and ask today, most Reformed Presbyterian scholars, pastors, readers of theology, who has been the greatest mind in the Reformed church and the Presbyterian world through the centuries, probably get one of two answers. I think most would say that John Owen is the greatest mind that reformed Presbyterian world has seen, great systematizer of theology, a man whose intellect didn't seem to stop. Few have rivaled him, probably Calvin would be the other that people would have come to mind. There was a time that John Owen was before Charles II, the King of England, and Charles II said to John Owen, talking about John Bunyan, He said, why is it that anybody would go and listen to that unlearned tinker? John Bunyan was not an educated man, and his father had been a tinker, a person that just fixed things on carts and uh, as he traveled to different places. And John Owen replied to Charles II, could I possess the tinker's abilities for preaching? Please, Your Majesty, I would gladly relinquish all my learning. He wanted to be able to apply the Word of God as John Bunyan could apply the Word of God. He wanted to be more than just a man of learning in his mind. He wanted to be powerful in the application of it, like John Bunyan was powerful in the application of it. In the Western world, we rightfully value knowledge, especially after the Enlightenment, but there is something greater than knowledge, and that is wisdom. Knowledge relates to information. Wisdom relates to how one utilizes that information. Knowledge is simply knowing things, knowing about things. Wisdom is making sound judgments about things. Knowledge is facts, but wisdom is the application of those facts, the employing of those facts in helpful ways. Knowledge does not include wisdom, but wisdom includes knowledge and requires knowledge. Knowledge is the lesser, wisdom is the greater. Many possess knowledge. There are few who possess wisdom. And wisdom is the greater thing. When you and I are looking for those that we are to listen to, when we are looking for those that we are to model our lives after, when we are looking to those that we should sit under and learn from and seek to be like, we are looking for people of wisdom. Good Shepherd is nominating deacons and elders. They are looking for men of wisdom. James makes it clear there are two kinds of wisdom though. Verse 15, there is wisdom that comes from above and there is wisdom that does not, that he says that is earthly, that is unspiritual and that he says is demonic. Wisdom from above, wisdom from below. We live in a university city here in East Lansing. Kalamazoo is a University city in many ways with Western there. It seems to be, especially in university cities, but in Western culture on a whole, that people think education is the answer. And if we but educate people, if we but give them a little bit, more knowledge, if we steep them in knowing things, then that will solve all the different ills in our society. That will solve all the different moral problems that we have. That will solve all the different barriers that we have erected with one another. Learning is the answer. More knowledge will result in more virtue. But there's a problem with that formula. And the problem is this, is the fault. In Genesis 3, when man fell in the Garden of Eden, he fell in his entire being. That is, every part of our faculties fell. Our affections fell. Our hearts fell. Our desires and passions fell. Our minds fell. In fact, Reformed theologians will have a term for this called the noetic effects of the fall. It is that our knowing fell. Not that our ability to reason completely disappeared, that's not the argument, but rather that yours and my minds fell, that we don't rightly reason, that we don't rightly think upon things, that we don't rightly come to the correct conclusions. Paul will make this point in Romans 1, all people know that there is a God, and yet as Paul points out in Romans 1, we do not honor or give thanks to God. He says they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's the truth, the world has trouble seeing. With our fallen minds, all of our knowledge, it just ends in futility. And often, because we have fallen minds and darkened hearts, more knowledge only serves to increase more sin. Every parent of children has a living example of that. Every one of us, as we examine our own hearts, know that that is true. Simple knowledge is not the answer the world needs. The world needs wisdom from above. I want to first, though, look at wisdom from the world, because Paul details that, or James details that here, and he begins that in verse 14. He says, it is filled with jealousy, that it is concerned with itself. It is self-consumed. There is selfish ambition, a desire to get ahead of others, having one's place secure. That is worldly wisdom. He says it boasts. He says it loves to tell others what you are or what you have done or what you have accomplished. That's worldly wisdom. It gives you just a leg up on others. He goes on to say in verse 15 that it is earthly it is this type of wisdom sees nothing beyond this realm. It is motivated. It is moved. It is conformed and shaped by the things of the world as if this is all that there actually is. It looks at life on this earth as very long and like there is nothing beyond it. In fact, James says it is unspiritual. It is, there is no thought of God. There is no thought of His desires. There is no thought of His call. There is no thought of His glory. And that leads James to finally say that earthly wisdom is demonic. Not that demons are the sowers of all of these false things. Not as if every worldly, wise thought you and I have that goes through our mind is put there by some demon that is active in our life or that is active around us. But rather that because we live in a fallen world, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians, rules in this place. He is exercising his influence. Christ rules over him. And yet he exercises influence. And as we operate by knowledge that is limited, that's focused upon this world as he would have us to do, we're neglectful of God's glory. We're selfish. We're boasting. And what James is arguing is that all of that finds its origins in the demonic realm. This is what demons do. It's demonic to cloud our view as if God does not exist, as if there is not something beyond this world, as if Satan himself is the true prince of this world. As if there isn't one that reigns beyond. This wisdom of this world is opposed to heaven. It's demonic. Much like we spoke about this morning. This fallen world will tell us over and over what is good is bad and what is bad is good. You're made to look like a fool in this world if you don't abide by its wisdom. How can you not believe that living together before marriage isn't wise? Isn't it good for people to figure out whether they want to make a lifelong commitment to one another in marriage? By living together first. How can you not believe that a man can become a woman. Or a woman become a man. They're telling you they feel trapped in the wrong body. How can you not believe that? How can you not believe that two men that profess love for one another. Can enter into marriage and a lifelong commitment to one another. And that is true marriage. How can you not believe that? Call what is wrong, right, and what is right, wrong, what is good, bad, and what is bad, good. It is earthly, it is unspiritual, it's demonic. And it leads to disorder, James says, in every vile practice, verse 16. That's what happens in Romans 1. That's what's happening in many ways in our culture today. Worldly wisdom has fruit and it is rotten to the core. Rotten. In contrast, James says there's heavenly wisdom. There is a greater wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes down from above. That enters into the vileness of this place. Reveals what is really true. It has a look about it. It has a smell about it. How do we identify it? Well, James asks in verse 13, he says, Who is wise? And who is understanding among you? And the answer is, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. A wise man doesn't simply know things, he lives the things he knows for the glory of God. Wisdom from above changes a person. Why from above? Because as Paul says in Colossians 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's our wisdom. Wisdom. It's not just that Christ is the fount of wisdom, and it's not just that wisdom flows from Christ, but rather that Christ is our wisdom, that in Him is contained all that is wise, all that is true, all that we need. He is the yes and amen of God. So, that when you and I are looking for true heavenly wisdom, when we are trying to identify what is truly wise, what do we do? We look to Christ. You look to his person. You look to what he has said. You look to how he lived. You look to him. That is heavenly wisdom. You seek to bring Him to bear in your life. You don't simply come to know Him. You simply come to know Him more. That is the pursuit of the wise man. Because He is wisdom. This is wisdom from above. And when knowledge of Christ floods the mind, when it floods the heart, when it floods the soul, the result is is that it influences It influences the manner that we live. And that's the wise man or woman. The person who doesn't just know about Christ, who doesn't just know the things of Christ, but has so been impacted by the knowledge of Christ that it informs their living, that is the wise man or woman, or young boy or young girl. That's wisdom. Wisdom from above. And that's the wisdom this world needs. Education can't do that. I want to look at some of the characters of this wisdom from above. First, James notes that there is meekness in wisdom. When you smell somebody that's wise, you smell meekness. You see weakness meekness verse 13 many bible commentators think that james here especially on the heels of talking about the tongue is speaking about teachers that as those who would teach the scriptures and they would bring the knowledge of christ to bear upon other people that they must be men of wisdom they must be marked by this and i think that is right but it is applicable to all the rest of us And with that in mind, he says that we are to be marked by meekness. Meekness isn't a word that we routinely use today. It's not a word that uh, is easy to define. It's more easily observed than it is to define. But it has the idea of gentleness in it. Gentle in Greek has the same foundational word in it as the word meekness does. It comes from the same root word. We're told in Numbers 12 that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. And that comment follows the account of Numbers 11. You'll remember Numbers 11 where there are a couple of men that are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua wants to stop these two men from prophesying in the camp. And Moses will tell Joshua, he will say, do not be jealous for me, Joshua. Moses wants them to continue. And then immediately on the heels of that, we get to chapter 12 of Numbers. And there, Miriam and Aaron, the siblings of Moses, begin to complain against him. And they complain against him because he had married the Cushite woman. And they ask the people this question: they say, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And then we are immediately told that Moses, now the man Moses, was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. What is that? Why on the heels of that is he called the meekest of men on the face of the earth? It's not because he didn't have a backbone. It's not because he lacked courage. Meekness is not being a doormat for other people to walk upon. It's rather what we see in Moses. He had a godly, humble gentleness about him that was informed by true knowledge of himself before God and it manifested itself in his actions towards others. And his understanding of his life circumstances. He believed he deserved nothing. Just a gentle humility. A truly meek person no longer has an entitled heart. They understand that nothing is deserved. That's wisdom. That's heavenly wisdom. What a contrast that is with worldly wisdom that, as James says, is jealous and selfish and ambitious. Remember that Jesus, the very, with the third beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount, will say that it is the meek who will inherit the earth, not the proud, not the conquering, not those who have self-assured personalities, not the man who walks into the room and demands and commands respect. Not the person that we will say, no one looks past him or her. No, someone does. God does. He looks to the meek. And it's the meek who inherit the earth. who are humbly gentle often thought that meekness may be the most attractive quality in a christian you know when you've encountered it you know when you've smelled it and seen it this is wisdom from above second he says this wisdom is pure verse 17 If wisdom comes from above, from the Holy Righteous One who sits enthroned above, then those who dwell and walk in this wisdom will be holy as He is holy. We want to become more like the One that we love. And the One that we love is pure. He's holy. He's righteous. So the wise man or woman desires to be pure as he is pure. It's not enough just to be in Him. We want to be more like Him. Third, this wisdom from above is peaceable. There's a peace that marks the person of heavenly wisdom. He or she is ruled by the peace of Christ that governs their thoughts, that governs their actions, that governs their interactions with others. They are extenders of peace. They're not sowers of conflict. They're not the person that you know is always criticizing others behind the scenes. They're not the one that is always stirring the pot. They sow peaceableness. That's wisdom from above. Fourth, wisdom from above is gentle. Was Christ, not gentle. A bruised reed he will not break, a flickering flame he will not extinguish. Jesus said of himself, for I am lowly and gentle in heart. Gentle. Did that mean that he never spoke a strong word when it was needed? No. Did that mean that he didn't have convictions? Oh my, no, he has convictions. Did that mean that he was not strong? Oh no, the strongest man that ever lived. And it takes strength to be gentle. Heavenly wisdom is gentle. I am the Lord your God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Gentle. Fifth, Wisdom from above is open to reason. Open to reason. So many in our day think it is Christian to be unreasonable. To be so fixed in one's convictions that we're unwilling to listen to others, and that that somehow demonstrates strength and fixity in Christ. It demonstrates that we don't have an earthly mind by not caring about what others think of us. But this isn't wisdom, not for the Christian. Wisdom from above involves a willingness to listen to others. Knowing that I still live in a fallen flesh with a fallen mind, that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, and I cannot trust my heart completely. I haven't arrived at every right decision. And so there's a reasonableness, a willingness to hear the arguments and not just write somebody off or cancel them because they don't think as I do. I've often told you this is one of the reasons I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Presbyterian because I believe it's biblical. I'm also a Presbyterian because it is very practical. I know that I haven't arrived. And Presbyterian requires of me that I learn to compromise with others, that I have to sit in a room, and that there will be people to the right of me and people to the left of me, theologically, in different convictions. Whether that is in our session, or whether that is in our presbytery, or whether that is in our general assembly, in our denomination, and they will pull me and push me in different ways that I need to be pulled and pushed. Because I haven't arrived. And here's news, you haven't arrived. Wisdom from above is reasonable. It's willing to hear the argument willing to think through them, to pray upon them. Sixth, heavenly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. If the fruit of earthly wisdom is disorder in every vile practice, this is contrasted strongly with the exercise of mercy and good fruit by heavenly wisdom. You see, heavenly wisdom aims at helping others, at being an extender of mercy. When you are marked by wisdom, by heavenly wisdom, you do not live for yourself. You don't. You live for Him, and you live for others. You pour out your life as a drink offering for the sake of others, as the Apostle Paul said of himself. You uphold the two great commandments. You seek to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you seek to love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's the kind of wisdom the world needs. That's the kind of wisdom that changes things. Heavenly wisdom. Notice that it's not just tinged with mercy. James says it's full of mercy. That is, heavenly wisdom doesn't just desire to produce good fruit. It actually produces good fruit. It does it. I was having a conversation with one of our deacons this week, and we're saying there are times, you know, in our life together as a church that we, we just don't ask people, what, what can we do for you? How can we help you? We don't ask. We just weigh it in wisdom and we jump in and we do it. We don't desire to produce good fruit. We produce it. That's wisdom. Wisdom. It's living in it. It's doing it. Finally, wisdom from above is impartial and sincere. Because wisdom from above is not selfish. It can be impartial. We can seek what is the best for the moment and for others. And it is sincere. It's not feigned affection for God. True heavenly wisdom is not feigned affection for others, but truly living for the glory of God and the good of others. Wisdom isn't simply knowledge of the mind being appropriated in a situation. It's knowledge being appropriated from the heart. From a heart that has been changed because the life has been changed, because it's encountered the living Christ who is all wisdom and all knowledge, and by union with him, seeking to live in light of that wisdom and knowledge for him here among his people and for the good of the world. Wisdom from above is so very different from that which is below. It's almost silly. And it is silly to use the same word for it. I remember wrestling with a similar idea when I was a seminary student. I was reading Jonathan Edwards for the first time and was reading his treatise called The Nature of True Virtue or The Nature of True Love. And in that, he was arguing that only the Christian can love truly. Only the Christian can love truly. I remember wrestling with that and thinking, well, I don't think that's true, Edwards. I've seen people that don't know Christ, I've seen them love. But Edwards was right. The nature of true virtue, the nature of true love, can only be exercised by the Christian. Because it's only the Christian that has the glory of God in view. And it's only the Christian that can truly operate in a selfless love that is motivated by the glory of God and the love for others. And so, James is saying in a very similar way, this is true wisdom. It's aimed at the glory of God as well as the ultimate good of others. And you can only have that true wisdom if it flows from a changed heart and that flows from a changed life and a changed mind. A heart, a life, a mind that is united to Christ. The great fount of all knowledge and all wisdom. As you live this way, you're going to be considered a fool. And increasingly so, you're going to be considered a fool. One of the great ironic things about this world is that you and I, as Christians, if you are a Christian in this room, you know that this is true wisdom, you know that this is everlasting wisdom. You know what is true. And yet as you speak it in the world, you are considered the greatest fool in the world. And the world would have you to be ashamed of it. Would have you to cower in talking about it and identifying with it. And yet you know it's true. To Christian, you need to be willing to be counted a fool For the sake of Christ. This world needs you to operate in heavenly wisdom. It needs you to bring to bear the knowledge of Christ in very applicable ways in your life and in your world. For the good of your neighbor and for the glory of your Savior. And that will mean often that you're considered a fool. But that's only here, not there, and not everlastingly. Be people of heavenly wisdom. Seek it together. Let me pray for us. Lord, our God, we are thankful. That you have not left us to ourselves, but that You have spoken into the vileness of this world, that You have turned the wisdom of this world on its head, and that You have given us wisdom from above. May we be people who dwell in that wisdom, who live in that wisdom, who are conformed to that wisdom coming more like the one that we love, for your glory, for the good of those around us, and for the good of the world that we inhabit. In Christ's holy name, amen.